From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The U.S. is pumping more than 13, 13 million barrels of oil per day. Do you think that that's a policy failure or a policy success? It's a policy necessity because uh, you obviously can't shut down the economies of the world and, and be ridiculous in, in sort of saying, oh, okay, we don't, you know, you're going you're gonna to affect demand without affecting supply at the same time. You've got to have a, a, a broad approach. That's what the administration is trying to do. Well, here's the latest. U.S. oil production at record highs. More than what was produced during the Trump administration. AMH, we are through 13 million barrels a day. Yeah, absolutely. A record for any country in the world that's happening in the United States. This is a little-known secret in Washington, D.C., because the Biden administration doesn't like to talk about it. Liam Denning, writing in a Bloomberg opinion piece, said, whether you prefer fossil fuels or clean energy, there's much to like with where the U.S. stands today. Sure, climate deniers. They won't like the mute music, regardless of record record oil and gas output. Biden's bigger issue, though, Jonathan, however, could be with the left of his own party, for whom all the above energy is a cop-out rather than a practical means of maintaining momentum for the transition. Amos Hochstein can't wait to talk about this. The White House senior advisor to the president for energy and investment. Amos, good morning to you. Good morning. Is that something you're proud of, 13 million barrels a day? Is that a good thing? Look, I think what we're proud of is the overall energy record that the Biden administration has had over the last three years. And that is, coming in, the president said very clearly, I want to be, I'm going to be the most pro-climate change action uh, green administration we've ever had. And he's worked really hard with Congress to pass important legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, all with major investments in clean energy. But it's an energy transition. And what we have to be able to do is to do two basic things at the very same time, which he believes the United States can do. And that is to accelerate the energy transition, to use government purchasing power, investment and incentives, tax and other, to bring about that acceleration in the energy transition, while at the same time making sure that we bring, that we control and manage a strong economy in the United States for American consumers and around the world. And I believe that we've done that quite successfully. Uh, and have allowed gasoline prices to come down, which has helped food prices to come down because we are a farm to truck to table, not a farm to table. And we've also at the same time been able to accelerate the transition. So we've done that uh, and by bringing the energy uh, uh, our energy policy there under control and managing it well, it also helped in bringing infl overall inflation down and supporting a very strong economy that we have today. Almost, this is the domestic story. We also have Russia still shipping energy. We have Iran every month putting out at least at this month, more than 800,000 barrels, most of that going to China, and Venezuela oil hitting the market. At one point, is the U.S. doing allowing lower gasoline prices at the effect of allowing adversaries to make money off of it? We're not. Um, we've, let's, let's 
tick off what you just listed. Uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine, we had a very clear policy, and that is we wanted to allow the Russian crude to continue on the market because taking it off the market would actually punish European consumers, not Russian consumers. So allow it to be. But we launched the price cap in order to make sure that the, what matters most is how much revenue Putin gets, not how much oil is sold. And that was our goal. It worked very well at the beginning, kind of had a little bit of a, uh, a resurgence of oil prices for Putin. We had to adjust to it, as we always do with sanctions. Uh, and we've brought it down again. So we, ha we have exactly what we wanted is the Russian oil on the market, but lower revenues. So he gets significantly less than what oil is traded for. Uh, and in Venezuela, look, there's been almost no increase in, in oil production out of Venezuela. There's been some changing of Venezuelan crude from going to China to going elsewhere. But it's, it's basically the same at a fairly low level. But what about Iran? Will the U.S. start to enforce some of these sanctions on Iranian oil? If we weren't enforcing sanctions on Iranian oil, Iran today would be back to uh, where they were uh, before sanctions, which is at about two and a half million to three million barrels a day. They have enormous amount of reserves and resources. And the reason that they're not doing that is because they're under sanctions. So yes, sometimes we are able to bring down their exports to one million or 1.1 million, and sometimes it goes to 1.4, like it is right now, 1.415. 1 so those are a bit seasonal. Uh, but by and large, they are under they are under extreme sanctions. Uh, they are not able to develop their gas sector, even though they're one of the largest reserves in the world and they export nothing. So I think that we're doing pretty well with that, making sure that our adversaries uh, know that if th their, their actions are... Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm, just, I, I'm just struck by this idea that we talk about OPEC Plus and how it's losing all its relevancy because of how much oil the U.S. is uh, pumping. And there's this question, I mean, not relevancy, but they're concerned about the plus and then beyond, which is the U.S. And there's a concern about how the U.S. has sort of the moral high ground both with energy policy, with Saudi Arabia, with Riyadh, as well as to help negotiate some of the very difficult situations right now in the region, given the fact that the U.S. is kind of eating their lunch a little. So I'll tell you, I, I don't subscribe to the, is OPEC plus relevant or not? Uh, because some years I'm told they, the United States is not relevant and OPEC controls the world, and some days I'm told OPEC has lost their relevance. Let's just say that they produce an enormous amount of oil, and they have, because of their uh, collusion with each other, they, can they have some impact on, on prices. Uh, but that's not what's important. What's important is the, where I started, and that is that our ultimate policy is I have to have enough oil on the market as long as I have the demand there and to make sure that the economy works. So my relationship with countries like Saudi Arabia or UAE or other producers around the world is to say, yes, you are producing oil, that's your revenue stream, but let's work together to invest on the other side, to invest in your disruption. And that's what we've told the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, and we are working together on investing in, there's more investment in renewable energy in Saudi Arabia and UAE than there is in many other countries around the world. That's where we want the cooperation of the future with oil producers, is how do we move to the next level? One, reducing emissions while, we're still, while they're still producing, and two, to use the revenues that they're getting from oil and gas and invest it into EVs and renewable energy and critical minerals and supply chains and to make sure that the energy future that we have, the clean energy future, doesn't have the same geopolitical risks 
that we've had for 100 years in the, on the oil and gas side. And that is a huge risk right now that is not focused. People talk too much about the oil and gas side and not how much work we have to do and are doing to reduce the geopolitical risk that the United States will face and others uh, in the clean energy future. And that's the real work that uh, we're doing now. Do you think we're trying to move too fast? No, I, I, on the contrary. I think we have to uh, continue to work as fast as possible. It doesn't mean that everything goes up all the time, right? So you can have certain things that will sell very fast. You have to take a little bit of a break, look at where the plateau that you've reached. Well, let's talk about the bumps in the road right now. Sure. So Hertz, bit of a reality check for them. They've got to dump 20,000 DVs. Cost of carriers just through the roof. Can't afford them. Demand's not there. Ford F-150 is not exactly exploding right now. They've been kind of production. You see example after example in America right now that it just feels like maybe we're trying to move too quickly? Well, I think what you saw with the legislation that the president pushed through was to do exactly, to address exactly this problem. So we've grown in the new car sales of electric vehicles dramatically over the last couple of years, uh, sometimes doubling uh, in one year. That's a lot. So we, we've uh, accelerated beyond expectations. That comes with the fact that you have to accelerate the infrastructure that needs to be there to support it. How many charging stations? People uh, in multiple polls will say one of the things that worries them about EVs is the charging stations, will they have enough? And that's what the IRA is supposed to do, is to be able to invest and in making sure that we have the deployment of the charging stations Secretary there. Secretary Kerry says the range anxiety is a misinformation campaign. What's well, that about? I, you have to ask him what he, what, he, what he meant, but I think that people want to be able to have an affordable car that they can manage their day-to-day -day lives with. And most people don't go uh, 200 miles in a 24-hour period. Uh, they drive a lot less, they go to work, they take the kids to school, they go shopping, they come home, they maybe go out downtown. Yeah. Uh, so the, the needing 400 miles on one charge, uh, I think is not what's holding people back. They don't expect that on anything else. So we, but we do have to have the, the comfort and the convenience that goes with knowing the, the peace of mind and knowing that if I go on the road, I will, I'll know what to do with my, car, with my car if I run into a longer trip than expected. And I think those are the kinds of issues that we need to work on. So instead of going into these you know, extremes of EVs are, don't work or EVs are, the, you know, are working, we have to look at what, what's stopping people from buying them. How do we address that issue? And that's what President Biden has been doing this whole time, trying to avoid the hyperbole and going into what, do we have, what are the solutions? How do we use, how does the, if we want to be the leader in the auto sector, for the, next, for the 21st century, we have to invest now. We have to make the investments so that we are the sector lead. People are coming for us. They want to compete in this sector. And they're investing enormous amounts of money. I, people always say that what we're doing is not fair because it's not free market. I tell them the energy sector, there is no free market. Most of the energy sector is controlled by governments around the world. And we need to put in American dollars, not to replace the private sector, but to incentivize the direction of travel so that we can accelerate this energy transition. Because if we don't, we will fall behind. Not only will we sin to our children and grandchildren on climate change, but we will actually do a disservice to American economic security. The private sector is not going to make these investments 
because if they're not 20% IRRs or 18%, so what we need to do is to have that incentive, both on the tax side, credits, uh, other incentives, and the actual spending, so that the private sector then comes in and makes those investments. We've seen it work in the CHIPS Act, where yep. that's, that's an, not only an economic security, Jonathan, it's a, it's a national security concern if we're not making the chips for the future that we are trying to create. We lead the world in the technology. We have to have the infrastructure and we have to have the inputs into that. We could talk about this for a long time. It's good to see you. It's good to see Thank you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it, buddy. Amos Hochstein there, representing the White House. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.